Thanks, Ronnie. All right, guys, good morning. My name is Jeff Heiser. I'm one of the pastors here at Trinity Church. Uh, We're going to be in Numbers chapter 12. Um, And today we're going to be talking about discontentment. And this is actually really relevant to me because I spend a lot of time washing dishes. Right? When I moved to, uh, when Cecilia and I uh, moved to Puerto Rico, we didn't realize that dishwashers were cultural. And something that we kind of assumed was a basic necessity to any kitchen, we had struggled to find here in Puerto Rico. Um, so I spent a lot of my evenings with my hands in hot, soapy water, uh, washing our dishes for the day. And as our family's grown from two to three, and we're preparing for number four now, and just the mountain of dishes has grown higher and higher. I found myself um, spending proportionally more and more time on Zillow, looking for my, you know, my dream house that has the kitchen, that has the dishwasher, that's going to fulfill all of my deepest longings. And, um, you know, but the th- so I'm always like, I'm always dreaming of this, this perfect home, this home that's going to have what I want. And, and of course, you know, I'm not the only one doing this. Um, I was reading an article actually in The Atlantic this week that um, it said that over the last 40 years that the average um, square footage per person in a house has gone from 500 square feet to almost 1,000 square feet per person. That means that the average space that each person gets to live in in a home has doubled in the last 40 years. But the thing is, no one's any happier with their homes. So everybody's getting bigger homes. They're buying, spending more time on Zillow, like me. And yet, they're not any happier. They're not any more content. Their, their um, house satisfaction, it said, has remained steady across the American suburbs. It is complete. The, these bigger houses are not making people more happy. And so when I'm reading this article, I'm starting to think on my own desires. And, and I'm realizing, hold on, what this is saying is that actually a house a more perfect house, a new house, a new place is not actually going to make my life any happier. It's not going to make my life any better. Or I could say it this way, that a new house is not going to make me any more content. Because that when, you know, when we adults talk about happiness, what we're talking about primarily is contentment. Like, what could I, what, when we say, like, what could I, what, what would make me happy? What we're saying is, what could I have that if I got nothing else, I could live a full and fulfilled life, right? What could I have that would make me content, that wouldn't, that would satisfy what I, my longings? And it's not, not just an important question for me, it's an important question for our society, because our society majors in discontentment. I mean, every single marketing department of every corporation is trying to sell you discontentment. If you've ever turned on, like, the kids' channel, like Nickelodeon, and watched the advertisements that they aim at children, it's, I mean, you'd just be horrified by, like, they're literally training your children to not be happy with the things that you got them for their birthday, right? Um, of course, adults were not a whole lot more sophisticated. If you watch enough uh, Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, you're eventually going to get whipped up enough into enough anger at how bad things are that you're going to go out and vote for the candidates that they want you to, <laughs> right? We're not a whole lot more sophisticated. So what do we need to be, in order to be content? What do we need? Um, it's actually not a new question. And um, it's something that the people of God were asking 3,000 years ago. And so we're in the middle of the sermon series called The Forgotten Torah. We're studying Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's the kind of overlooked, uh, some of the most overlooked books of the Bible. 
um, but we think that they're really relevant to our lives. And we think that the things that they were struggling with, they have analogy to the things that we struggle with today. And so we look at their discontentment and we say, what can we learn from their discontentment? What can we learn about our discontentment? And we look at the means by which they become content and we ask, could those same means maybe bring contentment to us? And so we're going to be in Numbers chapter 12, and it's... um, it actually comes in this, there's these three episodes in chapters 11 and, and then in 12 of the people expressing their discontentment. They're grumbling against God. First, they grumble about the water situation, right? They're in the desert. They're, one, they're, they're out there in the wilderness, and they are not there. Thirsty is hot, and they grumble about the water. Then, um, a few verses later, they start to grumble about the food. God has miraculously given them bread from heaven, manna, and they want some variety. They're getting tired of the free bread, right? So then in chapter 12, we have this third episode where Miriam and Aaron, um, they grumble against the leadership of their brother Moses, okay? So that's where we are. If you're Um, And so let's get to our text. If you are willing and able, please stand with me out of reverence to God's word. Uh, We're in Numbers chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 16. Miriam and Aaron, hear now the reading of God's word. Uh, Numbers chapter 12. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, Come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out, and the Lord came out in a a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forward. And he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth, clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of God. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. When the cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. And Aaron turned towards Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. And Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, do not punish us, because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Let her not be as one dead, whose flesh is half eaten away when he comes out of his mother's womb. And Moses cried to the Lord, O God, Please heal her, please. But the Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that she may be brought in again. So Miriam was shut outside the camp seven days, and the people did not set out on the march till Miriam was brought in again. And after that, the people set out from Hazaroth and camped in the wilderness of Paran. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will abide forever. Please be seated. All right, we're going to be looking at two different aspects of contentment. First, the nature of contentment, discontentment, excuse me. What is it? 
What is discontentment? And the second, the solution to discontentment. How can we fix it? So this past week, um, so first of all, the nature of discontentment, what really is it? This past week, Cecilia and I, we had dropped a a glass on the floor of our bedroom, and of course it shattered everywhere. And we were running out the door, so I didn't get, uh, you know, I was cleaning up the final shards a couple hours later, and it was starting to get to evening. And you know how on your vacuum cleaner, it has those lights on the front. Well, at night, those lights do a really good job of showing you how dirty your floor is, right? And so I had that moment where I'm vacuuming, and I'm like, oh, you know, I need to, I'll need to make sure nothing got under the bed. And I get down there with the vacuum, and those lights just, you know, they illuminate the, under, the, part, you know, the, um, the floor under my bed. And you realize in that moment that, holy cow, this situation is way worse than I thought it was. <laughs> there's dust bunnies, there's hair, there's you name it. There's, I mean, it's, it was bad. Well, discontentment is kind of like that, in that when you start shining the light into some of the corners, you realize it's a whole lot dirtier than you thought it was. It's a whole lot more gross than it seemed at first glance. So look with me down at your passage, right? Verses one, uh, verse 1 there. You see, Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because he had married a Cushite woman. Right? Mar- Moses had married, married this woman, and Miriam and Aaron did not like it. So the critique starts with Moses' wife, but um, immediately we forget about this woman, the Cushite woman, Moses' wife, because it was never about the Cushite woman, right? The Cushite woman was just merely an excuse. Verse 2, immediately they say, well, has the Lord only spoken only through Moses? This has nothing to do with who Moses married, right? It has nothing at all. Has he not spoken through us also? Moses' wife is a smokescreen. It is plausible deniability. It is an alibi for what's really going on, and that's that they are jealous of him. Right? It was never about Moses' wife. Like, that's super clear. She's never mentioned again in this text. It wasn't about that. It wasn't about who Moses married. Right? Moses was the leader of Israel. No, Miriam and Aaron. Aaron was the high priest. Right? He had this privileged position. He was the one who got to go into the Holy of Holies. He was the one who got to stand before God himself. And then Miriam, you know, she was the, she was the prophetess of Israel. She was the top, she was absolutely at the top of the pecking order. She was the most important woman in all of Israel. She was the leader of all the women, but it wasn't enough for either of them. They wanted more. They wanted Mo- what Moses had. So their critique of Moses' wife is not about her. It's about Moses. Their critique is about Moses. But it would get worse because uh, it turns out it's actually not just about Moses. Look at verse 14. The Lord said to Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed seven days? Let her be shut outside the camp seven days, and after that be brought back in again. Now, um, you might have, at this point, you probably have a lot of questions about this text. There's a lot of things going on that we don't, like, what in the world is going on with the spitting in the face? Like, why would a dad spit in his daughter's face? Well, um, ancient Israel, um, like, like lots of ancient cultures, um, was an honor and shame culture. It meant everything 
to, have bring, to have bring honor or shame on the family was incredibly significant. And so um, this spitting in the face was a visceral, uh, physical, very um, sensory way of telling someone, publicly telling someone, you have brought shame on our family. In fact, in Deuteronomy 25, um, it's actually in the law of God, is that when a man would bring intense shame on his family, the women would spit in the face of that man. Right? It's a very physical, like visceral way of showing the shame that someone has brought on your family. It's really serious um, in that day and age, in that culture. And so what God is saying is he's saying, Miriam, Aaron, you have brought intense shame on me. It's really, really serious. What God is saying is, listen, this is not about Moses' wife. In fact, it's not even about Moses. It's about me. You see, the critique of Moses was really a critique of God. God is shining the light into the corners, into the dark spaces, and he's saying, this is a whole lot dirtier than it seemed at first when you were whining about Moses' wife. So what is the nature of discontentment? What is discontentment? God makes clear to Moses and Aaron that their grumbling is a critique of God himself. It is not about their circumstances. It is about God. And so we think back to my discontentment about the dishwasher, you know, and wanting my perfect home. Like most of us, I'm not willing to do the hard work to really dig down and figure out what's really going on there. Like, what's really going on in my heart when I'm not able to be content with my home? Most of the things that we look to to fix our disappointment, our discontentment, they really just distract us from the real root of the problem. God's very clear with Moses and Aaron that their problem is with him, not with their circumstances. What is the actual content of their critique of God? Um, down at verse, if we look at verse 4 and 9, right, God calls these three siblings into the tent of meeting, and he speaks to them there, and he says, listen, there are prophets, and I speak to them in dreams and visions, and, and Aaron and Miriam would have experienced this. Right? They would have experienced God speaking to them in dreams and visions, right? But God, but God says, Moses is not like that. This Moses is very different. I speak to God face to, or speak to Moses face to face, audibly. I speak to him like no one else does. He is set apart. He is different. And everybody knew it. Like, there was no question in anyone's mind that Moses was very different from everyone else in his relationship with God. And so what God, he said, when he says, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? What God is saying is, like, Moses is set apart. You know this. Then why did you not pause before you questioned him? Do you not trust me to rebuke him, to guide him as I need to? Do you not trust me to know what I'm doing? Like, do you think that you know better than me? What God's saying there is, why do you not think I know what I am doing? You see, what discontentment reveals, it's a lack of trust in God. It says, God, I don't think you know what you are doing. I don't think that you know what's best. 
I mean, if we compare, compare Miriam and Aaron to Moses, in verse 3 it says that Moses was the most meek person on earth. We don't use the word meek very much today, but um, the NIV would say that he was the most humble person on the face of the earth. Um, and what's interesting about Moses is he doesn't say anything to defend himself, right? He doesn't bow up, like, you know, his brother and sister, right? Um, why doesn't he do that? Well, it's not because he's embarrassed or it's because he's insecure or because he's a third child and, you know, whatever the first child says goes. No. He doesn't say anything because he actually can, he trusts God, that God knows what he's doing, that God can work even these situations of intense critique. He can work them out, right? He, He could overlook a wrong because he knew that God was in control even in that wrong. You see, Moses was humble. Moses trusted God. Moses didn't need any more. He was content. Now, um, this kind of gives me an opportunity to make a couple clarifications about contentment. One is that contentment is not the same thing as complacency. You see, a lot of times we can be lazy or we can be passive, and we can disguise it by saying, well, I'm being content. No. (laughs) Moses was not being complacent, right? There are situations that you need to get out of. There are situations that you need to improve. There are ways that you and I need to grow. And we can do those things and we can pursue them from a place of contentment. It's not the same as complacency. You see, Christians, like, we should, contentment is a foundation upon which we can step boldly into things to change them. Because it says, I have a God who I can trust, a God who knows what he's doing, a God who has made it possible for me to be okay no matter what. And so I can step boldly into things and change them and move them. Complacency is not contentment. Right? Be really careful. Secondly, does this mean we can never be unhappy? Does the calling to be content, to trust God, mean that you always have to be happy? No. The Bible says absolutely not. And in fact, if you turn to the book, to the book of Psalms, you have this whole subset of Psalms that are called the Psalms of Lament. Laments. These are songs of sorrow. They're songs of pain, of sadness. They're tears, right? But laments are not just venting about the traffic, right? That is not a lament. A lament says it it comes. It is it is sorrow from a position of it's in light of God's trustworthiness. It's saying, God, I know you are trustworthy. I know you know what you are doing, and I am. and, And it's hard. But it's okay because I know what you're doing. But I can be, it can be hard. Discontentment says, God, you don't know what you're doing. Lament says, God, I know that you know what you're doing. Even in this pain. We can lament. It's okay. It's not the same as discontentment. Okay? So the reason, as Aaron and Miriam would learn, the reason that we are so discontent with our circumstances is because they're, 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 they're easy, easy um, 
excuses for something much deeper, right? A discontentment with God and what he's doing. What's the solution? How do we fix it? If we, don't, if we struggle to trust God, um, how, can we, how can we fix it? Uh, this is my second point. Um, I'm someone who's a little bit cynical about social media. I think that it mostly, you know, tears us apart, makes us, um, you know, makes us worse people, makes us um, cynical about other people. Um, But sometimes social media can be super funny, and it's really great, right? One of my favorite kind of recurring jokes, uh, it's, I mean, it's been around for years now, but is the, the hashtag first world problems. Do you guys know this one? Um, it's kind of like this like reality check to people that are complaining from a position of privilege. It's like someone someone says, like, oh, why do I always come to Rome in June? It's so hot. And you're like, oof. You know when Rome is hotter and colder. Like, you have enough of those experiences, right? <laughs> um, and most of our, I think, like, most of our complaining is from a position of privilege. Like, in, in our world today, you know, like, oh, my second car is in the shop again, or ugh, my mom won't buy me an iPhone, these sorts of things that we complain from, like, "Mm, maybe need a reality check that you don't live like everyone else does, right? Um, Well, in a sense, Miriam and Aaron were complaining from a position of privilege because um, Aaron was the high priest. He had special access to God. Miriam was the prophetess of Israel. She had special access to God. Right? But it wasn't good enough. And they needed a reality check. And so the discip- God disciplines them. And that discipline is God's reality check. Look at verse 10 for me. Um, it said, When the cr- cloud removed from over the tent, behold, Miriam was leprous like snow. As punishment of their critique of God, right? their complaining, their discontentment with God himself, Miriam is struck with leprosy. Now, why only Miriam, right? Because we're reading this and saying, what's going on? Are they just regressive and oppressive to women? No. Actually, if you um, take apart the Hebrew, you realize that um, it suggests that Miriam was actually the main instigator of this complaint. Like She was the one who was primarily at fault. Aaron was kind of tagging along, okay? And so she, of course, receives the harshest punishment, Um, But that's not the end of the story, the correction of God. Um, Look down at verses 11 uh, through 13. Aaron says to Moses, Oh, my Lord, do not punish us because we have done foolishly and have sinned. Um, And then verse 13, And Moses cried to the Lord, Oh, God, please heal her, please. What Moses is doing in this moment is he is stepping in between God and Miriam, right? Moses goes between. Miriam has sinned. She, they're very cognizant. Aaron and Miriam are very cognizant of the discipline that Miriam deserves. There's no question at this point. That's why, um, that's why he says, uh, Oh, Lord, do not punish us, for we have sinned, right? We have done foolishly. He's very clear that Miriam has sinned, offended God, and Moses steps in and says, God, heal her, forgive her. Miriam's sin resulted in her deserved 
punishment. Moses' mediation results in her undeserved healing. What does that have to do with contentment? Well, actually, it's in that mediation that contentment can be found. Why is it that four-year-olds always enjoy Christmas morning more than 14-year-olds? Because everything they receive is beyond their wildest imaginations. They can't handle it, right? They love it. Everything. They love it. But of course, by the time you get to 14, right, it's Christmas. I'd better get presents, lots of them, and what I ask for, right? You've had it for 14 years now. You know what to expect. You know what you get on Christmas. You know what you deserve on Christmas, right? It's presents, lots of them. Um, And then, of course, you know, the next day, uh, you know, after Christmas break, you go to school, and all your friends got iPods. Well, that's what it was for me. This was years ago. But everyone got iPods. And I was like, well, dang it, what I got wasn't that great, right? Because I didn't get an iPod. I need more. It's not, you know, I need an iPod. Who's more content on Christmas morning? The four-year-old, definitely, every time. Why? Because they have received gifts beyond their imagination and beyond what they feel they deserve. By the end of their encounter with God, Miriam and Aaron knew what they deserved. And it was discipline. But what they got was healing. Miriam receives far, far more than she deserves. And that, and, and, and that is where real soul-satisfying contentment can come from. From receiving more than you deserve and more than you could possibly imagine. And our... Our New Testament reading uh, today came from the book of Hebrews, and 15 years after, 100 years after this, about, you know, after this happened, the, the author of the book of Hebrews, um, he, he's reflecting on the suffering of Christ at the end of chapter 2, and he says, the, he says um, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. And remember, Moses had a privilege. Moses was different from anyone else. His relationship with God, there is not anyone else who has had a relationship with God like Moses. Moses was unique. And yet, the author of Hebrews is saying that Jesus is counted worthy of more glory as much more glory as the builder of a house is more, has more honor than the house itself. He says in verse 5, For Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken of later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. This is what, the, this is what he's saying in Hebrews. He's saying who Moses was to Israel in particular. And Moses had mediated between Israel and their grumbling and God many times. Right? Who he was to Israel in particular, and to Miriam and Aaron in, uh, or sorry, in, in um, Israel in general and Miriam and Aaron in particular, Jesus, uh, that, those things were a foretaste of what was to come. Right? Yes, Moses had the, this, the glory of this relationship with God, with God. Jesus has something way better. Moses was a servant, Jesus was a son. And so everything that Moses was, Jesus is much, much more so. And that includes 
his mediation, right? His mediation between God and us, a discontent people, provides a way for the mercy and the grace and the healing of God to be placed on people like you and me who are discontent with our circumstances. This is what the gospel says, that Jesus Christ came to earth. He lived a perfect life, that he willingly sacrificed himself on a Roman cross to pay the price of sin so that you and I could receive the undeserved mercy of God instead of our deserved discipline. He rose again from the, day, from the dead, defeating death and sin. He gets what you deserve and you get what he deserves. I think one of the reasons that we, even Christians, are so discontent is because we believe this in our heads, but we haven't let it work its way down into our hearts Contentment can be found in Christ when we understand that what we have been given in the gospel is far more than we could possibly imagine and far, far more than we could possibly deserve. You see, we wish our spouses would appreciate us more, but there's someone who says that you are worth dying for, that you matter, right? We wish that we could just find someone to get married. We just wish we could get married, find someone to date, find someone who would love us. There's someone who loves us perfectly and unchangeably. We're terrified of the way our country is going, and there's someone that says, I know what I'm doing, and I love you. I'm doing what's best for you. I can be trusted. Right? We fly off the handle when we're driving. Our lives don't revolve around us anymore. Right? We want the perfect house. We're able to be content in the gospel, not because of our circumstances, but because we have security and our, and our sense of worth is not tied up in our home, but in what Christ has done on our behalf The answer to our every discontentment can be found in Jesus. Not that he's going to bring us health and wealth and efficient lines at Walmart, right? But in his death and resurrection, he has guaranteed to us that which we do not deserve and that which whose breadth and depth we can never possibly plumb the depths of. Christ died to save sinful people like you and I, and he freely offers us salvation in his name. You have everything you need in him. It's in him that we can be truly and soul-satisfyingly content, and that's what we want to work down into our hearts, not just our heads, but our, in our hearts. And if we can do that, we can be content in this life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, I have a thousand things I complain about, a thousand things that are not good enough about my life or about me. And God, yet you care about me. You love me. How could I possibly need more than that? God, I pray that you would work into our, into our hearts a recognition of the power of your gospel to change our lives in every area, to make us content. Lord, be with us today as we celebrate your supper. Um, Lord, I pray that it would work in us a contentment, a satisfaction um, that we did not know that we could have. In your name we pray. Amen.